0: Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. We are thrilled to have with us today Professor Maha Bailey, Associate Professor of Practice at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. She is the author of many articles and blogs that push the boundaries of pedagogical theory and praxis, and in particular, online teaching and learning. She is an editor of the journal Hybrid Pedagogy and serves on several editorial boards, for example, Teaching in Higher Education and the Online Learning Journal. Lucia and I met Maha at the Digital Pedagogy Lab virtual conference last summer. She served as their former international director. Maha describes herself as a learnaholic, writeaholic, and a passionate and open educator. She encourages us to rethink learning and educational practices through the lenses of critical pedagogy and social justice, and she takes risk in her own development as an educator by exploring new terrains of social justice pedagogies. Theater of the Oppressed and Open Educational Practices. Welcome Maha Bailey to Nothing Never Happens.
1: All right. Um, Maha, thank you so much for being here. We're we're just we've been we've been talking to each other for the last several weeks, just like we haven't had a podcast interview in a long time, and so we've been looking forward to this one. Um, I just want to start, start kind of open ended, and ask you how you came to critical pedagogy. I and, and the work that you do now. I was reading way back on your blog in 2015, and I think you said you say on January 18th, 2015. The first time I read Frere was maybe in 2006, and I remember I was watching the film Martin Luther at the time. Um, Martin Luther and Frere. I don't often hear those in the same sentence (laughs) but you you connect all kinds of things so tell us tell us about that but then tell us about your your journey
2: I can't believe you read a blog post from 2015 that's amazing (laughs) okay (laughs) um all right so yes that that I was doing my PhD so I had done a master's in e-learning and that was not my passion e-learning at all but it was what worked for what I was doing at the Center for Learning and Teaching. But when I came to do my PhD, I decided to do it about nothing to do with technology whatsoever. And I decided that I want to research the development of critical thinking for students at my institution because I was realizing that not everyone was developing it at the same pace. Not everyone had the same experiences. So how could we claim to be a liberal arts institution developing critical thinking? But I did my PhD in the UK, even though I work at an American institution and i was doing my phd remotely so i was living here in egypt but my, my meeting my supervisor every now and then like once a year or something and as i was researching critical thinking i kept bumping into critical pedagogy and i'm like nope that's not the thing i'm looking for why would you keep coming up for me oh no 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 this is not what i mean and then i, I think what i i found probably an article comparing critical thinking and critical pedagogy to each other And I asked my supervisor, what do you think of this? like, yeah, go ahead and pursue it. And my supervisor at the time, uh, John Nixon, uh, he was a big fan of also Edward Said and post-colonialism. And for some reason, it took me a while to reach post-colonialism later, Uh, even though he introduced me to Edward Said pretty early. But that took a while. But that's how I bumped into critical pedagogy by mistake. But it was the best. I think coincidence is a serendipitous type of situation. And so one of the other funny things is, so I discovered critical pedagogy. I knew that this was supposed, you're supposed to end up reading Freire, right? And I did, we didn't have um, the, the pedagogy of the oppressed book in my university library, but we had uh, the other one, Educational for Critical Consciousness, which I read first and which I actually like more. So that's the one that I read while I was watching uh, the film Martin Luther. I think it was called Martin Luther, yeah. Um, What I thought was the connection there was one of the really key things that Freire talks about that actually happens in Egypt very soon after, which is that as soon as you start raising people's consciousness, what you're really raising at first is their awareness of their own oppression, which then produces anger and chaos rather than, constructive change, because your first reaction is, oh, now I realize what's been happening to me, now I'm really angry, but you don't actually know what to do with it. And what was happening with Martin Luther is that the people were recognizing the oppression of, I guess, when they started, what I understand is when they started to, to read uh, what Martin Luther was giving them, like what's actually in the Bible, um, and starting to feel like there were people who were oppressing them, what happened was anger and chaos rather than something constructive and then this happened in egypt when we rebelled in 2011 there was a revolution people knew what they didn't want but then when it was time to actually build a society and and work together they didn't know what to do so that's that's the connection with uh, with that movie and i think one of the things um one of the biggest advantages of doing a phd is your brain is thinking all the time, so you make those connections. So I make connections with cartoons. Uh, There was a blog post that um, that Tina (laughs) read today that I was making connections between like four different things that happened in my daughter's day, but I think they were connected. It's just a very serendipitous uh, type of thing when when two things happen on the same day that you can connect that way.
0: Yeah, well, um, I wanna go a little further with that uh, critical pedagogy discovery and one of the things that you said is how can we design our interactions with students differently to dismantle oppression that's mm-hmm. a very question uh, could you talk yeah. about how you approach your classes especially with uh online and you know sort of the restrictions and opportunities in, in online yeah
2: teams? yeah so um I know you were going to ask me this also later, but I want to tell you one of my biggest influences with critical pedagogy were the feminist critical pedagogues rather than the males. Because after reading Freire and Henry Giroux a lot, I found myself, oh yeah, I'm nodding. Yeah, I like what you're saying. I have no idea how to do this in my class. No idea. Like, what am I going to do with this? Yes, I agree with you. What do I do now? And I know they're trying to not be prescriptive, but they were so non-prescriptive to the, to the extent of not being helpful and too theoretical, I think. There are a few books by Freire where he's like in conversation with uh, Miles Horton and with uh, Ira Shore, and those are a little bit better in that sense. But the, the female critical pedagogues are the ones who taught me these two things. So I'm, I'm going to talk about Bell Hooks and about uh, Elizabeth Ellsworth. So I, I came across Elizabeth Ellsworth before I came across Bell Hooks. And Elizabeth Ellsworth, uh, my understanding of her approach, which I later learned is intersectionality, but I think she calls it, they call it feminist post-structuralist analysis or something. And what she was doing in the article that I read, which is called Why Doesn't This Feel Empowering, is she's talking about the experience of a white woman teaching uh, about race uh, issues to a diverse group of students and talking about the power she has as a white person and as the teacher, but then as a female and then the students and everybody's intersectionality in that situation and the micro power dynamics in the class and talking about That in that level of detail where you understand what did she try what went well what didn't go well and then allow me as the reader then to transfer from what her experience was that made the biggest difference to me in terms of thinking about what's happening in my classes because um, every, Every act of dismantling oppression. A lot of people think about, oh, I as the teacher, I'm going to step back and I'm going to give students the power to do whatever they want with me outside, and they ignore the power dynamics that are going to happen between the students themselves. You know, within the students, there are gender differences, there are personality even differences, even if there's no racial differences or all kinds of other power going on. And some of the things, there's so many things that you actually need to keep in mind, and it, at first it was very disorienting for me. Like, where do you start? But once you start to look at things in in this lens, you start to see things. So for example, if we're going to talk about uh, a face to face class, you start to notice how students sit and where they sit and who speaks first and who speaks more. You start to notice things like when I choose a particular text for students to read who is privileged by this choice of a reading and who is disadvantaged by that choice of reading, whether it's because of uh, linguistic ability, whether it's because of interest, whether it's because their culture is represented or not represented, um, whether they, I teach an interdisciplinary course, so students are coming from different backgrounds into my course, so whether it privileges someone who comes from a particular discipline over others, Uh, You start to notice things about the way you assess students and whether they privilege certain students over others. You start to notice whether you're allowing students enough space to bring their own culture and their own views into something. And then the very tricky one is um, when you're discussing something that is more controversial, what do you do when some students might potentially harm others by expressing views that are Discriminatory against them that could have, um, you know, that could have a negative effect. And do you, as the teacher, especially for me, I get triggered by sexist comments? I'm a woman and this is one of my triggers. And, but the males in my class are also dominant in society, but I am dominant over them in the classroom. And I need to keep that in mind. And at the same time, I feel responsible for all women to teach them. That, But at the same time, you don't want to force your opinion. You don't want to silence them to the extent that they can't speak anymore in your class. And so trying to to navigate that dynamic is really difficult. Um, In a recent uh, class, uh, we've had some sexual harassment cases in my institution recently that the institution's still dealing with. and I felt like students, this was uppermost in their minds. And one of the things that Ferry talks about is like bringing the students' worlds into the classroom, right? You don't just bring your agenda as the teacher. You need to know what are the students thinking about and let that be the topic of conversation. And so, first of all, a topic like sexual harassment can be really triggering for someone who's been a victim or something like that, right? Or, you know, at whatever level of, of their closeness to the topic. So before I had that conversation, I told students ahead of time, I'm planning to do this. If you're willing to contribute to the conversation, uh, come to this class for this. If you have any issues with it, you can talk to me privately or not come to that class. I won't take attendance if you don't want to come to it and things like that. And when we started the conversation, I talked about being sensitive about what you say because, you know, no joking about it, no no belittling it, and, and just making sure that um, everybody listens to everyone else and nobody makes fun of whatever anyone else says. And I also... Um, did a very small amount of that work in breakout rooms because I was worried that like I wanted to be there in the room for this one, you know especially online where you can't see their facial expressions. like if it was face to face, if they were in small groups I could see what was going on and I could go in and listen. Um, with online I did a very small part of it um, as a breakout activity and the rest of it we kept it in the room and I just kept checking in with students all the time. And my students don't turn their cameras on so I can't see their facial expressions. so I had to like really listen um, closely to them. Um, so, for me, I think, I think one of the key things is nurturing students' agency, especially in the online space, where it's not always easy for you to know what's working for them or what's not. It's, it's, it's making sure that you give them opportunities to choose where to go and how to participate in something like this, um, and, and giving choices. Uh, and also, right now, because of the pandemic and the kind of trauma that's just over everyone giving them. I always give them choices, but I feel like I have to give them more choices and give be more explicit about the choices. And because students don't always know that they can make a choice and sometimes making the choice is itself an act of critical thinking. So just trying to be supportive with that, you know, well, with that kind of um, thing. I need I need a drink of water. Just hold on a sec. <laughs> <coughs>
1: On this topic of agency, I um, I'm curious about how you build capacities for agency and sort of student student autonomy, student pathways to right. creatively pursue um, their interests, their questions, their challenges in the course, in your right. syllabus design, and in your assignments, especially especially right. now.
2: Right, right. So that's a that's a good question. And and for background, Egyptian students, um, especially in my institution. So I'm in a private uh, nonprofit liberal arts institution that is expensive for Egypt. So a large majority of my students are relatively privileged. Uh, a few of them will be scholarship students. They, but whichever of these they are. They come from very different educational backgrounds. So in terms of ever having been given any kind of agency, there's a huge disparity between the students and same for their uh, background in critical thinking. So they have um, you have students who were taught to memorize every single thing and regurgitate it and always listen to authority and you have students who have had some degree of freedom, but obviously only at the high school level, which is not the same as at the college level, no matter what. And of course, different family cultures, and then you live in a political environment that is mostly, yeah, restrictive (laughs) in a lot of different ways, right? So it's sort of trying to navigate that aspect that's really important. One of the first things I do early on in the semester is that I show them a video um, of, this is, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, probably not. It's a video of Donald Trump um, uh, Look in the White House, painted, pointing at a particular picture and saying this is a sea of love and all these people are coming from everywhere and it's a sea of love. And if you don't remember this expression, in the video that I show my students, they are looking at Mecca and the Kaaba, which is the place for the Muslim pilgrimage. So would you imagine that there's a picture of the Muslim pilgrimage in the White House and Donald Trump is calling it a sea of love? And I show it to students and I ask them, what do you think is happening here? Why would he say that? And students are like, that's so weird. Oh, he must be doing it for some hidden agenda because I don't know what or there must have been something that happened there. or He's trying to pretend to like Muslims. And then I ask them, "Okay, so you guys are skeptical. Something weird is going on here. They're like, yeah, I'm like, why are you saying that? What do you know? It's making you say that, well we know he hates Muslims, we know da da." And then every now and then a student will say, "Maybe it's a fake video." And I say, "Well, check it out." And it is a fake video. Of course it's a fake video. <laughs> it's like almost, and of course it's a fake video. Um, but I, what I do is I tell them, first of all, because I'm your teacher, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything I tell you you should believe. The other thing, though, is I'm not teaching you to be skeptical for the sake of being skeptical. That's the very masculinist North American view of critical thinking. I'm asking you to look at this in a different way. What do you know that's making you skeptical of this? You know Donald Trump. You know that this is a Kaaba. You know a lot about how fake videos can be made. When I tell them that I got this video on WhatsApp, they're more skeptical of it than if I just it's as if part of a textbook or whatever so i tell them it's not that you're being skeptical for the heck of it you're being skeptical because you have a lot of information believe the information that you already know and use that to be skeptical of what i'm telling you as your teacher like just because i'm your teacher doesn't mean that everything i say then everything else that you know doesn't you know you have to ignore so that's sort of starting it out by letting them know they can question me and I I share with them sometimes articles that I agree with or don't agree with so that they know that that just because I'm saying something it doesn't even mean I agree with it. And then I started out really early on giving them choices over, uh, you can read this or that article or you can watch this video or read this alternative article so that they have even different modes. Um, I, I have an assignment to develop their critical thinking where their, sorry, their digital literacy, which is what the course is about, where they, They assess their level of critical thinking on uh, digital literacy, I keep saying critical thinking. Let me say this all over again. I have an assignment called Choose Your Digital Literacies Pathway. So where they assess their digital literacies uh, according to a survey, and then they decide whether they wanna learn more about digital literacy. First of all, which topics they're interested in and whether they wanna read about it by reading, uh, find out about it by reading or by doing a module or by experimenting and tinkering. And then I give them different places where they can do them. They can choose whatever they want. Um, I also uh, let them, pl- we do digital narrative games and I ask them to play a lot of different games. First of all, there are two we play together. Uh, they're all about building empathy. Like I, I approach the entire topic of digital literacy is by building a foundation about talking about um, identity and culture and power and oppression and equity and, and empathy and all that. And then we learn about bias and algorithms and things like that. So the foundation for the course is about those things. Um, and so when when we get to the part that, well, first of all, we play two games together in class, but then they have like 30 or 40 games to choose from again, play a few of those and reflect on them, then decide on their own topics for whatever they want to do. And one of the things I realized, if students aren't used to having that much free choice, they struggle with it. And so I spend some time with them one-on-one to help them build the topic of their own uh, games because a lot of times to do something about something they're really, really, truly passionate about, um, they need a lot of encouragement and a lot of conversation. And then to, and a lot of students come out there and say, oh, my God, I'm so glad I created a game about this. It was sort of a cathartic experience for some of them to be able to express this thing that they've never had an experience of expressing it in their class. And even like at the very beginning of class, when I get to know them, I tell them, I don't want you to just say my name and my major and my age and those things. Say, what is it that you're proud of that you've done in your life that you wish people would ask you to write in a CV, but they never do. And that's what I want to know about you. Um, So it's about always, I think it's really about seeing them as full human beings and reminding them all the time that that's what they are to me, that they're not just students giving me what, what I want and, and, and go. And, and also, like, just the way you ask them questions, when you ask them to do something, it's always about, you know, how are you, how are you going to connect this to your life? Why is this important to you? What, is, what if they don't like something? And, and I also used to have an assignment where what they need to do is they need to contribute something to the class. But I realized that it was at the end of the semester. And I decided from early on to say, start doing it throughout the semester and we'll use what you contribute during the semester. Like, I'm not going to wait until the end of the semester to discover that you had something useful to say in the first week, in the first month. Um, And whenever someone brings that into their blog, I'll bring it back to the class and say, this person has contributed this to the class. And... The thing is some people will do that naturally. Some people are just more courageous with that and the, and others won't be, but then the more I do it earlier in the semester, the more people start to contribute that way. I don't know if this actually answers your question fully because I think a lot of a lot of the decisions related to to critical pedagogy are are design decisions, but a lot of them are in the moment. Mm-hmm. And they're difficult to say ahead of time how you do them, but when you're in the moment, you're in that way and you do it, and then you tell a story. You know what I mean? So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Those are great examples. Well, you mentioned uh, your professor at Sheffield, um, John Nixon, uh, also turning you on to Edward Said and uh, decolonizing approaches to education and, um, Uh, And research and so decolonizing the curriculum is sort of a current topic now it's a hip thrown around term that that sometimes doesn't have a lot of depth to it. Uh, So we'd like your thoughts around this whole discourse what you're hearing, and also Mm -hmm. ways you think it could bring about real systemic change in in education, Uh, you know, curriculum, pedagogy, and also the very structures of of higher education institutions.
2: Yes. So first of all, let me step back from this a second because Edward Said was more about post-colonialism and I didn't learn about decolonizing until like maybe three years ago because mm. Edward Said talks about post-colonialism. I don't think he uses that term of decolonize. I wasn't familiar with it until like I said recently and the people who talk about decolonizing the most had in my experience been South Africans yeah. uh, more than anyone else. Um, I was familiar with this, like, why is my curriculum so white movement in the UK, but I, I still, I got, I came familiar with the term decolonizing more recently. So d- that's just one little thing to say is that I used to say post-colonial for quite some time until yeah. I discovered this term.
0: Yeah, good distinction. And could, maybe I ran across in the research, uh, this document, public universities with a public conscience, uh, that comes from South Africa, maybe from um, the concerned academics.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a plan, a proposed plan for social pedagogy no. alternative in the time of pandemic.
2: I don't no, know. You, I don't know that one.
0: It was in sure. one of those okay. huge books you're in. <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> okay.
0: Um, <yeah. laughs> so from um, post-colonial, from, yeah, from
2: yeah. So I'll I'll just explain my relationship with each of these things, and, and I'm, I. I People come to me with this and I always feel like I don't know enough about decolonization because I always feel like whatever my efforts there are always incomplete and my understanding is always incomplete and I have not like I don't read canonical texts of anything so I don't even read the canonical texts of decolonization but the thing is when I was reading about postcolonialism, I remember this feeling of you know in critical pedagogy there's critical pedagogy in general and then there's feminism and there is anti racism and all of that and I kept seeing what what's happening there's something else there that's missing and then post colonialism like ah that's the one that I'm feeling that I uh, that I experience and this obviously neo colonialism more than like I'm not in a situation um, and, and I, the post obviously has so, so many different means but anyway but that, that experience is is good in the sense of this is that what is happening right post but it's not what are you doing about it and I think decolonizing is this act of there is coloniality, so one of my colleagues, Jose cosa likes to rather say decolonialization, because you're it's not colon, it's not colonization, it's coloniality that we're fighting. It's what what continues beyond colonization, right? Um, and so, so when first of all, there, there's also I actually like the the broader discourses of of social justice um, of Nancy Fraser. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where she talks about economic, cultural and political uh, dimensions, because, of course, colonization and decolonization talk about those three, but I think there's always an emphasis on epistemic justice. And epistemic violence and the, 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 the cultural and political take a little bit more of a focus in terms of what are we doing, but the economic, which usually gets focused on in other spaces is maybe less of a focus here. And I think all three are really important. Um, and, and with, the, with the, the decolonization discourses, I think there's so much that needs to happen on a systemic level that a lot of us don't have control over and and the other aspect of it is that if you really think about decolonizing the power structures of academia you will reach a stage where you need to dismantle the entire university and I actually don't believe that that's a good way to go because it's kind of like why I also I'm not with completely de-schooling even though schooling is causing so much harm with its hidden curriculum and with a lot of its explicit not even hidden curriculum is that People who have no other way to learn and advance economically and, and need need even this that is not good enough would have nothing if we totally dismantle it, and that's that's why it's really scary for me. And here I am working at an American institution in Egypt, which is basically colonialism. Like there's <laughs> there's no other way to look at this, right? Um, but I but I still think there 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 are there are ways of There's a lot of internalized oppression that people from my part of the world have been experiencing for years and it's very difficult to undo that. But I think as a teacher from my culture, teaching at the institution where I'm at, it's really important that in my teaching, I don't perpetuate and reproduce that kind of oppression. So for me, for example, some really basic things for example in my institution and don't say this to my provost he's not going to listen to this podcast in my institution we're supposed to speak completely in english Mm. like we're not supposed to speak arabic at all unless it's an arabic language course and in my course there is no reason to speak arabic but if students prefer to express themselves in arabic for something emotional or for a joke these kinds of things being expressed in your native language makes so much of a difference in a classroom that I completely have no problem with it, and I do it as well, and, I, and I've and i always, at first when I used to teach students who had not so good English, that was even more of a thing that I want you to understand what I'm telling you rather than I'm not here to teach you English, right? Um, but with my students now, undergrads, that are at AC, they're relatively fluent. It's not that they can't say it in English, but sometimes this is not the right expression for that moment. So that's a very important thing that I do. Uh, that it's my class is kind of bilingual. Their written work mostly has to be in English, but every now and then I can give them an assignment in Arabic and I took permission to do that. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is when I, as soon as I start my class, like sometimes when people say you need to diversify your, um, you know, the, your sources in the class, they're, they're, it's one thing to include. Uh, so think about this. If you had 10 readings, And you had three diverse reading, but the other seven are still the dominant things, they would still dominate if you had Five white people and then five non white people, but each of the non white people. One is Latino. One is Native American. What is one is Chinese. One is so you've actually just given them one of each. So that's not what I do in my class. I make sure that the majority of what we read in the class, especially in the beginning are African authors, Arab authors, authors from the global south. Um, and speakers from the global south and i always mention where this person is from a lot of these are talking about their identity and how it shapes where they are and what they're where they're coming from it's really important for me to value um, epistemic uh, ways of knowing like epistemologies that are uh, around storytelling and experience and not um you know you know what i mean not the dry western data driven that kind of thing that's really really important to me and when i mention American authors, they're usually people of color as well, and I think that's really important for them to keep seeing that, to keep seeing themselves as possible producers of knowledge. I think when you're from my part of the world and every source of knowledge is coming and they're not looking like you, you start to believe, oh, the knowledge comes from there, we're the ones who consume it. So I think it's really important for them to feel like they can talk back and, and they there are people like them that they're experiencing that with. Um, and also, like, the way we write in my class is just, like, use your own voice. That, that is in itself a thing that they've been taught not to. A lot of times it takes a while for students to think, oh, actually, I can just talk about in this way. I, I don't have to fit my writing or whatever into a particular mold. Uh, and we talk about the kind of internalized oppression that they have it's not that we just do this and maybe they'll understand it. No, we have to talk it out and and be explicit about it. And we talk about what does it mean that you can express yourself in English better than you can express yourself in your own language? And how do you feel about that? And how does that affect you as a citizen? What kind of a citizen are you because of um, that? Um, And then the other aspect, though, that I think is really important is in in my course, it's a global studies type of course where they have to interact with people from different cultures, and we talk about the power in that, and who has power in those conversations, and in what ways are do they have more power, and what ways they have less power, what is their intersectionality in those in those spaces. Um, in in a classroom, you don't have so much the. But sometimes I bring it up, but you don't have as much uh, power to talk about what's happening in the institution in terms of what needs to be decolonized about the institution itself. What's happening in the way the institution treats, for example, American expat faculty versus Egyptian local faculty? Or how does the institution uh, treat African-American faculty? Because in Egypt, where you internalize this um, superiority of the West, you also internalize superiority of the white Western person. Not the random Western person who may be an immigrant or who may be African American or such. Uh, so those things are things that are more difficult to talk about in the classroom. But I am activist outside of the classroom as well. And sometimes I'll bring it back to my students and tell them, Oh, you know what? Today in Senate, I spoke about gender issues, and I'll talk to them about that. Mm-hmm. That's not. I think even Edward Said, I think, um, used to talk about how he doesn't bring politics into the classroom. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that. Like you are that you are who you are. And if we're talking, you you don't want to indoctrinate students, which is it's a very tricky space to be. You don't want to indoctrinate students into what you believe, but at the same time, you cannot pretend to be a person who has no values. You have to be explicit about your values. I think that's a lot of what uh, bell hooks talks about. Like you have to be vulnerable and make yourself vulnerable before you ask students to be vulnerable. Um, and I think that's also a really important thing. And um, it's, it's important to know also that sometimes when you start out this conversation by letting them realize um, the ways in which they may be uh, experiencing oppression or causing oppression to others, because sometimes they're aware of, for example, the oppression against Muslim people in the West, but they're, they don't want to admit the, the ways in my country, Christians may be oppressed. I mean, they are. It's just that the students think it's not as big of a deal. Because it's, it's something that obviously gets hidden from them. That they're not, if they're not experiencing it directly, if they're not very close to someone who's experiencing it, they, they won't talk about it. Um, so I'm sorry. That my answers are always vague when someone asks me about decolonizing because I always feel like it's such a huge, huge, huge topic that I never feel like I'm even approaching enough work on it. And the theory of it is overwhelming. Yeah. The practice of being a person in this space is very nuanced. Do, 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 do.